This episode is dedicated to the memory of Eleanor Cummings. In the dark hours, in the antique books, in the letters long lost and forgotten, there are tales of horror to frighten and disturb. Come, join us as we delve deep into the darkness. Into the sleepless hours when you dare not close your eyes. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Volume 16, Chapter 13. Welcome, sleepless listeners. I'm your host, David Cummings. Summertime means a chance to grab a good book and read on the beach or in the great outdoors. Might I recommend a new book from friend of the show, J.R. Hamantaschen? It's a new collection featuring 12 stories of truly dark fiction titled, You Know It's True. Acclaimed throughout the underground horror world, J.R. Hamantaschen a former contributor to Pseudopod, Drabblecast, and of course the No Sleep Podcast, returns to the short story genre with his fourth and final collection of horror fiction, containing some of his most innovative, unsettling, and uncompromising tales. His work has been widely published and endorsed by the H.P. Lovecraft literary podcast, The Lovecraft E-Zine, Kirkus, Monster Librarian, and several other reputable outlets. Check the show notes for a link to where you can find the Kindle or paperback version of You Know It's True. Now, all through last week, I kept checking my local news outlets for mention of an explosion at a storage unit facility. Nothing. Not a peep. Not one word. And yet, there were a couple of news stories about the previous break-in. Obviously, I'm extremely unsettled by this. So I've asked fellow Canadian Jeff Clement to take a trip to the area and scope things out. But speaking of taking trips, you may recall I was sent some New Jersey map coordinates before my explosive detour back to Canada. Trying to view them via Google Maps led me to the same kind of errors I experienced when I was trying to locate the first address of the thickening plot. So, once again, I took to my car and drove my world-weary self to some place or another. Once again, I assumed it would either yield no fruit or lead to some kind of new, maddening voice in my head, all of which have been thankfully silent this week. And I was wrong. Oh, dear listener, I was wrong. At the exact location indicated by the coordinates, I found a small, out-of-the-way, independent bookstore. Through the window, I could see shelves upon shelves of used tomes, a treasure trove of words, and in one corner of the window, a faded, handwritten sign that had clearly been there for decades. Just a small, innocuous thing, sun-bleached and forgotten. It read, Formally, 
the thickening plot. The new name? Whispering Pages Bookstore. Whispering. The whisper before the scream. The scream is almost here. Imagine my trepidation, listeners, as I took hold of the door handle and pushed. Despite the open sign, I really expected it to be locked. Thus has been my luck so far. I almost fell through the door as it swung open, a little bell tinkling overhead. My hands were trembling as I steadied myself, taking in the old book smell and looking up towards the counter, towards the young woman smiling at me curiously from behind it. Finally, a friendly face in this saga. A friendly face that, within the next hour, would transform into a nightmare. I'm still in discussions with her about sharing what happened next. She's a little hesitant, for reasons that'll be clear if it all pans out. And so the tale must pause until next week, but not before I share the next entry in our ever-growing list of mystery stories I've been guided into presenting. This one came in the form of a book I was given. Only a small portion of it is filled. It's a journal found in a cabin after a winter storm, and the name written on the inside front cover is N.M. Nichols. Aaron Lillis has kindly agreed to narrate the journal. And meanwhile, I return to my correspondence with the new owner of Whispering Pages as we discuss what to do next. December 1st. Well, we're here. Vicky and I reached the cabin around 4 p.m., and it's just as breathtaking as the pictures online. About half an hour from the cabin, I started having these irrational thoughts that the cabin would end up being this dilapidated shack out in the middle of nowhere, but that wasn't the case at all. There are several hiking trails nearby, and one of them leads around a waterfall. Vicky should like that. The cabin's on an enclosed lot, and by enclosed, I mean enclosed by the forest. There's enough space around the cabin for front, back, and side yards. But the woods press in all around us, another point in the cabin's favor. Ever since, well, anyway, she likes the outdoor spaces more than closed ones these days, and I can't blame her. She perked up at the side of the cabin, so that's a good sign. I rolled us into the carport on the right side of the cabin, then we offloaded everything and proceeded inside. There's no cellar, but the cabin is nice and spacious inside. Clean, too. The proprietors do their jobs well. There's a flat-screen TV, Blu-ray player, comfortable furniture, and three bedrooms, two of which have their own bathrooms. Kitchen is fully stocked, and there's a back deck with a grill on it. In the supply closet, there's a bunch of cleaning products, plus a couple of snow shovels. I doubt we'll need them. Before we came here, I was monitoring the weather very closely to make sure we wouldn't get snowed in. I only had enough PTO time for a week, and my boss isn't the most understanding of people. Even after? God damn it. That'll be all for tonight. Vicky's got the latest Godzilla movie queued up on the Blu-ray player out in the living room, and I can smell popcorn. I'd better get some before she hogs it all. December 3rd. Vicky and I did some exploring. 
We woke up early and looked at the map I'd printed off back at home. We marked some trails we wanted to try. Vicky wanted to take the one that ran past the waterfall, and I agreed, though I wasn't too crazy about the trail's length. Vicky's been walking pretty well. The physical therapy has helped, and she does need the exercise. But still, mother worries, you know? We set off along the trail. The air was brisk and still and so quiet. Not quiet like it gets when the other animals sense a predator and go silent. Just quiet. A peaceful kind of quiet. The kind of quiet you don't really get if you live close to a city. I had the one walking stick and Vicky had both of her own. I tried to keep from telling her to use them if she needed to, and it turned out I didn't really need to. If she put too much pressure on her weaker leg, her right leg, she'd wince, use the walking sticks, and then resume walking normally again. It was good to see her recovering physically, still worried about the mental part of it. Her therapist was the one who suggested getting out of town for a while, and it was a good suggestion. Vicky was all for it. She's been having a lot of trouble readjusting going back to school. She tells me she gets the shakes just walking through the front doors. And then she's a walking ball of anxiety throughout the whole day. Loud noises make her jump. If someone talks too loud, the anxiety gets worse. I see the effect it has on her. And it makes me want to strangle the son of a bitch even more. I can't read the local news, or the national news even, because they've got his picture plastered all over the place. The rage I feel when I see him. I can't talk about this any further today. My own therapist has told me that journaling it out will help me, but I've never been good at letting things out. The waterfall. Yes, it was beautiful. Vicky and I gazed at it for quite some time. The temperature dropped a little, and that encouraged us to move on and get our hike done with. We made it back to the cabin, and by the time we did, Vicky was sweating heavily from the effort of walking on her bad leg. I had her throw an arm over my shoulders, and I managed to steer her through the door and into the cabin without putting further pressure on her leg. I checked her leg once I got her situated on the couch. The wound healed with this ragged-looking scar, and while it looked a little inflamed, it wasn't serious. I wrapped it up with a cold pack and asked Vicky which Godzilla movie she wanted to watch. She pointed out the one with the three-headed monster. Gaidora, I think it's called? I don't know. I can never keep them all straight. I made us both some mugs of hot chocolate and then watched my daughter's favorite monsters rampage across the screen. She fell asleep about halfway through. The hike had tired her out. It was good for her, though. Good for me, too. December 4th. There's a fucking snowstorm on the way. I can't believe it. I checked and checked and checked before coming up here, and none of the forecasts had predicted an incoming storm. And now, I wake up this morning and check the news on my phone, and sure enough, the National Weather Service dropped a forecast for the very thing I was hoping wouldn't happen. I debated packing everything up and heading home. I didn't want to miss work or risk my boss's ire. But I also didn't want to take this time away from Vicky. She desperately needed to get away from it all for a bit. She needed this trip. I ran the idea of leaving by her, letting her know about the incoming storm. Vicky didn't look happy about it and said she'd rather stay. She said it wasn't like we were further north, where you get 20 inches of snow and Arctic wind chill. People in Ohio tend to freak out about the weather. 
driving all sorts of crazy when there's only an inch of snow on the ground. So we decided to stay. I took a brief inventory of everything we have in the cabin, and we've got enough to last in the event we do get snowed in. Vicky's right, though. We're in the southernmost part of Ohio, and the chances of us getting snowed in are virtually nil. More Godzilla movies, more popcorn, more hot chocolate, more good memories to paint over the bad. I love my daughter so much. December 5th. We got maybe three inches of snow. Not at all the massive polar onslaught the local news was going crazy over. It was enough for me and Vicky to shovel the cabin's driveway for a bit, just until the concrete gave way to gravel. Vicky and I took turns, and she was able to do a lot of the work without having to rest. Vicky was starting to limp a little after a bit, so I sent her inside. I finished shoveling the front walk and called it a day. Vicky wanted to spend some time by herself. She holed up in her room playing old Nintendo games on her handheld until I knocked on her door to let her know that dinner was ready. We had chicken stir-fry with mint chocolate chip ice cream for dessert. She didn't want to watch any Godzilla movies tonight. She went back to her room and played more games until she fell asleep. I went in to check on her, then turned off her 2DS so the battery wouldn't run down and set it on her nightstand. The wind's picking up a little outside. I checked the forecast again and there's more weather incoming. If it's anything like what we got today, it shouldn't be anything to worry about. December 6th. I woke up this morning and looked out the window to find that the snow was halfway up to the windows. Thank God I thought to bring snowshoes just in case. I let Vicky shovel out the carport while I tackled the front walk again. The snow thankfully stopped overnight, but with dropping temperatures and extensive cloud cover, all the snow that got dumped on us last night won't be going anywhere soon, which meant an unpleasant conversation with my boss over the phone. That conversation went about as well as you'd expect. He used a lot of condescension and conjoling, which works with many of the other employees and not so well with me. I know he's not gonna fire me because I'm one of the few employees he has left, and I'm one of the good ones. We left it with him telling me to just come in when I can next week. Vicky and I built a snowman today. That's something we haven't done since she was a little girl. We had buttons for the eyes and mouth, and a carrot for his nose, too. We gathered some sticks from the woods for his arms and hands. The finished product was a classic snowman, complete with one of the scarves Vicky brought with her from home. Norman Rockwell, eat your heart out. December 7th. Someone walked through our front yard yesterday. I wouldn't have noticed it if I hadn't gone out to check the front walk and make sure it was still relatively clear. We haven't gotten any further snowstorms, which is good. Anyway, I got to the snowman, and that's when I saw the tracks. They weren't deep either, which was strange. I'm not a tracker by any means, but I could tell that whoever walked through last night, they weren't doing it in hiking boots or even snowshoes. From the pattern, it looks like sneakers or maybe even loafers. As deep as the snow is, they should have sunk a lot deeper than they had. The tracks stopped at the snowman, in fact, they went around the snowman, and I could see little spots where the person had actually touched it. There were these strange markings, too. Like runes or something, in the form of black dots. Like whoever this was took a sharpie to it. Then the tracks continued across the rest of the yard until they disappeared into the woods. 
I don't like this at all. The thought there might be someone out there in the woods is unsettling, to say the least. My phone wasn't getting signal, go figure. So I used the corded landline phone in the cabin to call the local sheriff's department. They said they'd send someone out, but it's already early evening and I haven't seen anyone yet. I haven't told Vicky. Haven't decided whether that's a good idea. She's very despondent right now, playing video games in her room and doodling on her sketch pad. I don't want to make her afraid. If something else happens, I'll tell her. But until then, I'm keeping it zipped. December 8th. The snowman is different today. Vicky and I have started packing our things. We're intending to head back home tomorrow. I wish we had more time. Vicky started out content, for the most part, but now her depression has really taken hold. She's been moving around listlessly, gathering her things and putting them in her suitcase. I hate seeing her like this. Nothing I do to try to bring her out of it is working. I was walking through the living room to pack up some of the extra food in the fridge when I happened to look out through the front window. I stopped and stared at the snowman for a bit, trying to make sure that my eyes weren't playing tricks on me. The buttons we'd arranged into a smile had changed into a frown. The small sticks we'd used for eyebrows were now angled down instead of up, giving the snowman an angry expression. What's more, the snowman seems to have turned a little. When Vicky and I built it, it was staring straight at the cabin. Now it's staring straight through the window. I headed outside to see if there were any more tracks. There were none. Just the same set of tracks I saw leading out from one side of the yard to the snowman, then leading off to the other side. I was thoroughly unsettled at this point and headed back inside. This time I told Vicky what I'd found. And though she's putting on a brave face, I can tell that she's just as freaked out as I am. There's always the possibility that whoever messed with the snowman yesterday followed the same path out from the woods during the night. They placed the feet in the same tracks and rearranged the buttons on the snowman's face to make it look angry. I don't understand why, though. I brought Vicky out here to get away from the madness for a little while, and still it manages to find us. Why? Why would someone want to do this? I don't understand. December 9th. We haven't left the cabin yet. We haven't been able to. Vicky and I brought our things out to the car and we were loading it up. I was putting my suitcase into the back when Vicky tapped me on the shoulder. I asked her what was wrong and she said, Mom, the snowman, look. I looked and the snowman was sitting in the middle of the driveway. I moved in front of Vicky, gently shifting her behind me with my arm. I stared at the snowman wide-eyed, my breath shaky. The eyebrows were still angled down. The button mouth, though, was once again different. It wasn't frowning anymore. From the left side of its face, it was a straight line. Then the buttons turned upwards, so it looked like it was smirking. I looked over the spot where it had been standing in the front yard. There was a great swath of smooth snow that erased the human footprints in between it and its former position. I refused to believe what I was seeing. 
There was no way the snowman moved itself from the front yard into the driveway to block our path. Just no way. Whoever's been messing with us by messing with the snowman did it. But there would have been more tracks. A lot more. And you can't just disassemble a snowman like it's a Lego set or push it in any direction you please. I told Vicky to get back inside. Once we were back inside the cabin, I called 911 via the landline. I told the dispatcher that someone was messing with me and my daughter. Someone dangerous. And the dispatcher told me that due to all the snow, it might take a while for an officer to get out to us, but to just hang tight and take whatever measures were necessary to keep ourselves safe. I hung up the phone, and then we waited. And waited. And waited. Half an hour passed, and the police never showed up. At which point, I told Vicky we were getting out of here, snowman or no snowman. We went to the door, and I tried to open it. It did open a little, but then it crunched against something on the other side, something that definitely hadn't been there when Vicky and I had first gone outside. I looked through the crack in the door and saw a three-fingered wooden hand. I screamed a little and slammed the door shut, locking it. Vicky was in a full-blown panic by that point. She'd gone to the window and yelled to me what I already knew, that the snowman wasn't in the driveway anymore. She figured out where it was soon enough and started screaming, and I took her into my arms and tried to quiet her, even though I was just as scared as she was. We're trapped. Update. The police still haven't shown up, and now the knob to the side door is jiggling. December 13th. Vicky's been sleeping with me. The door to my bedroom is locked, and I keep the curtains over the window drawn. I swear I will lose it if I open them and see that fucking snowman staring in at me and my daughter with that goddamn smirk on its face. It's night. The forest around us is quiet, but I can hear it moving around the cabin. There's this persistent crunching noise. The kind of crunch you hear when someone's walking through snow, but this is different. It's like something is gliding over the snow. And I know exactly what it is, though I still haven't been able to wrap my head around the fact. How the hell do you bring a snowman to life? How would someone do that? Why would someone do that? I mean, I grew up on those old wintry Christmas stories where a kid and their magically living snowman go off and have adventures together. But those were stories. Something warm and fuzzy to sink into alongside your partner or your kid. Something to make the big, bad world outside your window go away for a while. But this... This is a nightmare. Once every day, I sneak out of the bedroom and try to call 911 on the landline. My smartphone still isn't getting a signal, even though it was getting one when we got here. Another mystery I don't understand. I'll start talking to the dispatcher. And then the knob on the front door starts jiggling. Then it'll move to the side door. And then to the door leading out to the back deck. I even held the phone up to the doorknob as it was jiggling and yelled at the dispatcher. Do you hear that? Do you fucking hear that? It's been trying to get in for almost four days now. 
I even tried to set the thing on fire. On one of my trips out from the bedroom, I got a lighter and an aerosol can. I've never done that before, but I figured now was as good a time as any to learn how. I went to one of the jiggling doorknobs and unlocked it. And as the door started to swing open, I flicked on the lighter and sprayed the can into the flame. The resulting gout of flame was a lot larger than I thought it'd be, and I almost set the curtains next to the front window on fire. The flame caught the snowman full in the face. It inclined its head, turning it away from the flame. And to my horror, I actually smelled something like burning meat. Parchment's face melted, and the button mouth split in two and hung open like it was screaming. As the fire burned into its head, I saw the snowy surface of its skin split and slough off in its wake. Something black and viscous like oil dribbled down its front and onto the floor. And I screamed as I slammed the door in its face and locked it. Whoever has done this to us brought it to life in more ways than one, it seems. And now we can't get out. The police aren't coming to help us. I don't know why. I'm trying to come up with a plan to maybe lure it into the cabin and kill it. Or maybe incapacitate it long enough for me and Vicky to get in the car and drive out of here. I'm thinking. That's all I can do is think. Vicky, baby, I brought you up here and I'm so sorry. I didn't know any of this was going to happen. December 14th. It's in the cabin. During the night, I was startled awake by the sound of glass shattering. It had to have come in through the front window. It's the only one that's big enough for someone or something to come through if they break it first. Now, now it's at the bedroom door. I can smell that burnt meat scent again. The heat is rapidly dissipating now that the front window's broken. But even if it wasn't, the snowman wouldn't have melted. It's not made of snow anymore. The knob has ceased twisting and turning. Now it's leaning against it. I see the door bow inward, then back, in, then back, like the door itself is breathing. Vicky is already out through the bedroom window. I told her to go, to run as fast as she can. The town's not far from here, and Vicky was on the cross-country team at her high school. Even with the wound in her leg, she'll be able to make it. She's got my drive and determination. I don't think it knows she's gone because it's still trying to get into the bedroom. That's fine. That's just fine. I've got my lighter and my aerosol can. And maybe I can burn the son of a bitch to death before it gets me. The hinges on the door are groaning audibly now. There's a crack in the door. Wish me luck. Picture it. You're walking up a desolate mountainside. Snow and wind whirl. 
There's no respite in sight. And then, suddenly, materializing in the distance, a cabin, safety, warmth, and maybe even another person to offer aid. But in this tale, shared with us by author Manon Lysette, we're reminded that misery loves company, and sometimes you're safer facing the elements. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson and Graham Rowett. So pull open that creaky door and shake the snow off your boots, but maybe look around so you're not left saying, I wasn't alone seeking shelter from the blizzard. There's an unspoken rule up in the mountains that no matter who you are, friend, bitter rival, stranger, anyone, if you're ever in a pinch and come across another hunter's cabin, you're welcome to seek shelter there. Maybe it's unspoken because it's common courtesy and that whole do unto others thing. Or maybe it's unspoken because there's hardly anyone to speak to. In the winter months especially, you'd be hard-pressed to see another soul for weeks, sometimes months. But that's the rule. You need it, you use it. No judgment, no questions asked. Just don't steal anything. Now, I'm not a burly, seasoned mountain man that flosses with tree bark and never shaves, but I do like to hunt. I often leave my small Alaskan village for weeks at a time and take to my hunting lodge up in the mountains. I'm a fairly cautious guy, and I know the mountains can be traitorous. So when I leave, I leave prepared. I check the long-term forecast, gather the necessary supplies, bring backups, and make sure I've got enough of everything I need to survive at least a week longer than I plan on staying. Just in case. I always believed my precautions would protect me, but like a child security blanket, they were only a paper-thin illusion of safety. There's no planning when Mother Nature decides she's in a mood. That's why I never expected to get caught in a blizzard that day. It had started out sunny and cold, but as the day progressed, a few clouds formed. By the time they'd amassed into a huge cloud covering, I was already on my way back to my cabin with a couple of hairs hanging over my shoulders. I'd named them Dinner and Breakfast. I was planning on eating breakfast for dinner and dinner for breakfast. If only to make myself laugh. It's the little things like that that keeps the solitude from turning into loneliness. The snowfall seemed to come out of nowhere. Like someone had knocked an awning shot and all that new snow collected on top had fallen all at once. Except, it wasn't a single tidal wave of snow. It was a relentless, unending assault. Last I checked, the weather reports hadn't mentioned a blizzard, and yet a blizzard was what I found myself walking through. It got very dark, very fast, and I kicked myself for leaving my flashlight back at my lodge. I'd planned on coming home long before nightfall, so I hadn't thought I'd needed it. I'd been sorely mistaken. I had to squint almost all the way to keep those sub-zero jerks from stabbing me blind. The wind howled as gales cut through my clothes and right to my bones. 
I could barely see two feet in front of me, and couldn't see the two feet behind me as they sank in an ever-growing blanket of white. I'm not sure when I realized I was lost. At some point, I knew I should have arrived at my cabin, but all I saw was white with a few slivers of grey swaying in the thick breeze. The hairs at the back of my neck became stiff and battered against me with every puff of air and every awkward crashing footfall. I was running out of energy, running out of ideas, and beginning to panic. I could have spun around in a computer chair a hundred times and felt less disoriented than I did in that whiteout. And then, I walked right into a cabin. Literally. It had become so dark and the snow so heavy that I couldn't see the structure until I stumbled face first into it. I held my hands against the wooden facade so I wouldn't lose it in the storm and circled around until I found a door. I wasn't just in a pinch. This was life or death. In the unlikely event someone was inside, I knocked on the door and waited for an answer. Through the howling wind, I could have sworn I heard, Come in. As I swung open the door and stepped inside, a small avalanche of snow tumbled in with me. I didn't bother trying to kick it out as I fought against the wind to close the door behind me. The relief was instantaneous. Without the air whipping at me, I'd put a stop to the timer ticking down to my freezing death. Thanks. I turned towards the inside of the cabin and tried to get my bearings, but all I saw was blackness, which meant I had no real way of gauging the size of the cabin. Yeah, I'd circled around it, but I'd been stumbling around half-blind, focused on trying to find a doorknob, so I had no idea what length of the cabin I'd covered. I could have walked half of it. I could have circled around three times without realizing it. Through the darkness, all I could see was the vague outline of someone sitting in the corner. You're a real lifesaver. He didn't answer. I pawed around for a lighter, a lantern, a matchbook, anything that might emit light. But all my fingertips touched were chains and the barrels of hunting rifles. I stopped poking around when I felt an open bear trap. Wouldn't want to get my arm caught in one of those. It was safer to sit still and wait for daybreak. It occurred to me the stranger might have been seeking refuge as well. I tried to keep my tone light and innocent. So, you the owner of this cabin? The answer was more of a hiss than a word. But in that hiss, I heard a faint word. Yes. I sat on the floor, let my hairs down beside me, and reached into my pack. Why well, I had taken a sleeping bag with me and not a flashlight was beyond me. I removed my wet clothes and quietly slipped into the sleeping bag to warm up, making conversation as I did. Thanks again. That blizzard really came out of nowhere. He replied with the slow, labored, wheezy breaths of an elderly man on his deathbed. Dangerous. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's an understatement. Hungry. You got a fireplace? I've got a couple of hairs. I'll cook them up. It's the least I can do. His reply was drawn out, like a wolf howling, but without the majestic hum. No. 
Okay. As soon as the blizzard dies down, I'll go gather wood and make us a fire. Can you wait until then? I saw his silhouette shift slightly. It was a rattle of chains. No. The final no morphed strangely into a yes, like someone drastically changing to a much higher note on a flute halfway through a breath. I craned my neck to look at the single window in the cabin. It was pitch black, pitch white. It was like an afterglow, visible against the black backdrop of the wood, yet still inherently dark. I focused on it rather than the rest of the cabin, because it was the only hint of light I could see. If you don't mind, I'm gonna try to catch some shut-eye. You didn't respond, but that didn't surprise me. Mountain folk don't talk much. Even when they come down to town for what few supplies they can't make or scavenge themselves. I shrugged it off and settled in for the night. But I felt something hard against my side. Sighing, I tossed my hairs back a bit farther and got comfortable. I was exhausted so it wasn't all that hard for me to drift off despite the wind's song playing outside the walls. I hugged myself in my sleeping bag and drifted off. I was awoken by a different sound, a weird snapping crunch that made me shoot up in bed, believing that the ceiling was about to collapse under the weight of the snow. I braced myself. But as the sound came again, I realized it wasn't above me, but rather next to me, near my belongings. The silhouette was gone from the corner, and I could hear his deep, raspy breaths accompanying the crunch. What the hell are you doing? He retreated to his corner with the rattling of chains. My adrenaline was pumping, and I wasn't even sure why. Something about the stranger put me in a state of near panic. My instincts were telling me to leave, but I couldn't afford it. Whatever this guy was up to, I was safer with him than I was out there in that blizzard. I grabbed my backpack and propped myself against the wall in a seated position, staring at the silhouette, expecting him to make a move. I kept myself awake and alert, ever looking away even as the howling wind slowly diminished in strength. Once or twice, I felt my head begin to dip and my eyes begin to shut. But every time I slipped, a faint rattle of chains snapped me back into consciousness. As the blizzard cleared and the sun slowly rose, light began to trickle into the cabin. The scene filtered through in tiny increments with each layer uncovered by the sun, like a printer slowly spitting out the full picture one line at a time. I wasn't in a cabin. It was a large supply shed that was maybe 10 or 11 feet long, 7 to 8 feet wide. There was no fireplace, which makes sense for a supply shed. There were tools, traps, and rifles lining every wall. The silhouette in the corner slowly stopped being a silhouette and started being a distinct person. Skinny. No. Gaunt. Pale. No. Ghost white. Man. No. Corpse.
corpse. I was gutted. He was dead. Not, oh shoot, I died overnight, sorry about that, dead. Long dead. Long, long, long dead. His body was all shriveled and mummified? Is that even the right word for it? He wasn't wrapped up in bandages or anything like that, but his skin was completely dehydrated and stiff, like an unwrapped mummy. His hair was hanging from his head in unkempt strings. His teeth were poking out of his shrunken lips, the wide gap where the top right canine should have been. There was a stain of age-old blood soaked into the wood beneath him. I followed it by gaze to its origin. His left foot, and the bear trap in which it had gotten caught. There was an empty hook on the wall above him with a chain leading to the trap. It was long enough for him to move around, but not enough for him to reach the front door or the saw hanging above it. My best guess was the trap had fallen on its own while he was out, and at some point he'd done a supply run in the dark and had gotten caught in his own trap. He'd probably died of thirst or hunger. Look, I'm telling you, he wasn't breathing. He wasn't moving. He was dead as a doornail and had been for quite some time. I sat there, reasoning I'd been delirious the night before. The fatigue, the dehydration, the disorientation caused by the blizzard. It made me imagine his voice. Those slow, hissing sounds I thought were replies were just the wind outside. I'd interpreted them wrong because the loneliness had finally gotten to me. The elements had conspired against me to create a living person out of someone who definitely wasn't living. It was a good, logical explanation, and I wish I could say it was true. Except, I'm not the one who bit the head off of breakfast. It's not my canine tooth I found on the floor next to me. My dry, dirty, wood-like fingernails weren't the ones sticking out of the outside of my sleeping bag. I'm not the one who caked the corpse's dry, cracking lips with white fur. I didn't stick around for dinner. Family can be a mixed bag. For every loving blood relative, there's another horrible, miserable individual making life hell for those who share their DNA. And getting away from these people can be important and necessary, kin or not. And in this tale, shared with us by author McKenna Park, we're reminded that blood definitely isn't always thicker than water, at least when it's in the form of snow. Performing this tale are Nicole Goodnight, Nicole Doolin, and Wafia White. So settle in and keep an eye on those dear to you. Don't let bad people weasel their way back into your life, especially not through the basement door.
No one would believe what happened. Not from a little freshman girl, let alone a freshman girl known for her big mouth and brazen attitude. Few people believe strange tales from a girl with a backstory like mine. The kind that either produces awkward sympathy, or worse, a full-blown pity response. People think those types of girls are just looking for attention any way they can get it. But I'm not. I promise. Because what happened can't just be a coincidence. Besides, I already get enough attention being the new kid in a school made up of classmates from born and raised families deeply rooted in the area. That, plus playing starting varsity on Riverview High's soccer team, got me much more attention than I ever wanted. So, what's your story? One of my soccer teammates asked me this one breezy afternoon practice. I was sitting on the grass stretching my hamstrings. My story? <laughs> Who am I, a fairy tale character? <laughs> no. I mean, I hadn't seen or heard about you before you showed up to practice after the season had already started. No story, really. My mom and I just moved up here from Long Beach for a change of scenery. Riveting stuff, huh? Come on. Nobody moves from the sunshine and beaches to this place for a change of scenery. She gestured to the flat Idaho plains around us. Well, we did. All right, all right. She backed off at my defensiveness, but her tone clearly indicated she didn't believe me. The truth? No. We did not move to this drab gray town in an insignificant state on a lighthearted whim. I loved my life in Long Beach. My friends since preschool, our townhouse with a big porch outside my room, my wardrobe comprised of flowy tank tops and shorts and sundresses. But those are all packed up in a cardboard box in a storage unit. And mom had to leave her dream job of running a local art museum. Because leaving soon became our only choice for mom and me if we wanted relief from the constant fear of my father coming back, violating his restraining order for the umpteenth time. Mom's beautiful, tanned skin still bears his marks, their timeline expanding years all the way back to the first scar from when they were both 17, and he shoved her into a glass cupboard of china when she told him she was pregnant. Needless to say, I'm not a big fan of his. Blessedly, I mainly inherited mom's features. My dark hair, my skin slightly lighter than hers, but still nothing close to his pale, freckled face and bright orange hair I still see sometimes when I close my eyes to sleep. It wasn't until one of his blows was so hard he landed her in the ER that mom finally took out a restraining order against him. And then it wasn't until he hit me for the first time that she finally decided to stop letting him break that restraining order. On the day that it happened. It was already getting dark by the time I got home from school. As if the biting breeze and graying snow weren't dreary enough, the Idaho sunlight had to abandon the day early. I walked into the house through the side door to the familiar sound of the safety alarm. A mechanical female voice sounded from the main device on the living room wall. Front door. It had been months, but I still wasn't used to it. Mom had insisted on installing it before we even unpacked our few moving boxes both out of fear of my dad finding us and, well, of my old sleepwalking habits. I hadn't done it in over four years, but mom couldn't let go of those nights in my childhood when she'd find me walking to the garage or accidentally falling down the stairs. I couldn't blame her, I guess. Mom would be home soon from her shift at Applebee's, but I was hungry after running around for hours at soccer practice, so I started getting dinner ready. The whiteboard on the fridge read, Tuesday, 
black bean tacos. The beans were simmering on the stove, and I was getting the tortillas heated when she walked in. Side door. Mom unbundled herself of her winter gear. I asked her how work went, and she told me about a customer who talked her ear off about her 17 pets holding up a line of customers behind her. We broke lettuce and sliced an avocado as we talked. After cleaning up from dinner, I worked on homework for a bit while Mom made a trip to the laundromat, and then we both headed downstairs for our Tuesday night tradition. The ritual of bundling up in blankets and watching a scary movie went so far back, back to when the scary movies I was allowed to watch were limited to Hocus Pocus and the sort, that I couldn't remember how it started. But ever since, we've gathered quite the collection of horror and thriller DVDs. It was Mom's turn to pick the night's movie, and after a minute of serious deliberation facing the DVD shelves, she slid out The Shining and popped it into the player. Gripping each other's arms and occasionally hiding our face behind our blanket, we watched as Jack Nicholson descended into madness, terrorizing his wife and son at the empty Overlook Hotel. Mom kept nudging me to keep awake. (laughs) No matter the movie, I always had trouble staying awake on movie nights. But on Tuesdays, my mom made sure I stayed awake with her, lest she be left alone during the climax of the horror on screen. Soon, the end credits began, and then the DVD was back to the main menu, looping on the same short spurt of menacing soundtrack, pausing for a beat, and then starting over. An image of the iconic moment when Jack sticks his head through the splintered door served as the backdrop for the DVD menu. The soundtrack reached its end and paused, preparing to loop back again. Neither of us wanted to get up from the warm blankets to start getting ready for bed. Basement door. My stomach lurched in a way I've never felt before. I felt Mom's body suddenly tense up next to me. We never used the basement door. Nobody did. It was accessed through a cement stairwell from the side of the house leading into the basement storage room. The stairway was always filled with spider webs and stray yard clippings in the summer and icy snow we didn't bother to shovel in the winter. In fact, I didn't think I'd ever heard the alarm system notify of that door opening. I turned to my mom. She held a finger to her lips, her eyes wide at the doorway to the hall that led past her bedroom and the storage room. I couldn't hear anything other than the DVD menu continuing on. The doorway remained blankly pitch dark. Mom unfroze her body and stealthily got to her feet. It's probably just something faulty with the alarm system. Still, she looked around the TV room for some sort of makeshift weapon. She settled on the iron fire poker hanging next to the small fireplace left by the house's previous residence. As she began making her way towards the doorway, I rose from the couch to join her, but she motioned for me to stay. Both options seemed equally terrifying going closer to the possible danger, but staying close to mom or keeping farther away from the basement door, but separating. I listened to her, sitting back down on the edge of the couch, clutching the armrest. I realized I had forgotten to breathe for a few beats and forced myself to take a deep, shaky breath. The darkness from the doorway enveloped her, the iron poker clenched in both her fists like a baseball bat. I fumbled for the remote to turn that awful menu music off so I could hear what was going on, though part of me didn't want to hear. The silence pressed like a weight on my ears. I thought about getting up to turn a light on, but I was frozen. My eyes couldn't leave the blankly dark doorway. I realized I was holding my breath again. My heart uncomfortably raged in my chest. It was too quiet and too long of a time since Mom left. If nothing was wrong, she should have been back by now. Nothing but a heavy silence and darkness. 
Then suddenly, Mom burst out of the doorway, making me jump and bite my tongue. She pushed me to the staircase. Run! Run now! I couldn't feel my body. It was completely numb. But somehow, I was moving toward the stairs, up the stairs, seeing my feet lurch forward on their own accord. The staircase seemed as if it was expanding longer than normal in front of me. I could hear Mom behind me, but I didn't dare look back to see if there was someone behind her. When I finally reached the main floor, I hesitated, not knowing which way to go. Out the front door to run on foot? Risk taking the time to get into the car and back up out of the carport? Come on! Mom dashed to the side door, yanking off the keys from the wall hook. Suddenly, I was in the passenger seat of our forerunner with no recollection of getting there. Mom was turning the key forcefully, but the dumb engine often stalled when the temperature dropped low. And boy, was it cold. Of course, we hadn't paused to grab coats. I couldn't tell how much my shaking and trembling was from the cold or from sheer terror. The engine whined in protest against Mom's desperate attempts to bring it to life. I kept my eyes on the house's side door, expecting it to burst open at any second. It stayed still for who knows how long my mom struggled. But then rather than the door slamming open, the handle slowly turned as someone gripped it from the inside and cracked it open. I could hear the alarm system going off. The door was just cracked a few inches when the forerunner finally, blessedly roared to life. Mom accelerated out of the carport backwards and into the road, shifted into drive, and lurched down the street heading west. I was sobbing uncontrollably. Are you okay? Are you okay? Deep breaths. Slow, deep breaths. She kept turning her head to see if anyone was following us, but there was no one in sight. I couldn't remember if there was another car parked in front of our house or on the other half of the driveway. Maybe the intruder had come to our house on foot. Over time, my sobs subsided. Then I got my breathing under control, but couldn't stop my core from trembling on its own accord, shivers rippling through. We were zipping through a dark, unfamiliar stretch of neighborhood when my voice finally returned to me. (laughs) Who, Who was it? It was... I gave her a moment, figuring it was a stranger and she was trying to think through the trauma of how to describe him. Or maybe we did know him and she didn't want me to know. Didn't want me to know my father had tracked us down. She never finished her thought, just silently stared ahead at the road. Mom! 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 I grabbed her shoulder and shook her. I was sobbing again, but still she ignored me completely. I screamed her name a couple more times. She gingerly began applying pressure to the brakes until we slowly came to a stop in the snowy road. I need to go back. For a few seconds, I couldn't comprehend what she was saying. Then she turned the wheel and began turning the car around. What? Are you joking? Her voice was cool and mechanical. I need to go back. Are you insane? Why would we walk straight back into a crazy guy's hands? I need to go back. Her repetition and monotonous tone were adding another layer of fear to my heart. My own mother was causing a wave of fear-driven adrenaline to wash over me. I started to lose it. What's wrong with you? No, we can't. We can't go back. I tried to shake her by the shoulder out of this unnerving, glazed state. The police? We need to call the police. 
I patted my pockets, but realized I had no pockets. I was wearing pajamas. Do do you have your saw on you? I didn't really expect an answer back. We, We could stop at a neighbor's house, tell them it's an emergency, ask to use their phone. But mom had gone silent, continuing on into the darkness back to our home and the nightmare possessing it. I tried a few more times to shake her out of her trance, even slapped her cheeks, but couldn't get a reaction out of her. There was only so much I could do without endangering both of us as she continued to drive the snowy streets. I gave up and sat back in my seat, breathing deeply. The situation was so bizarre, so unnerving. We reached the house. Mom parked the forerunner on the curb in front of the house. I'll be back. Stay here. No, don't! You'll get hurt! I couldn't bring myself to finish the sentence. My sobs were coming out too heavily. I pulled on her hand as she exited the car, but she easily slid out of my sweaty grasp. I wanted to follow after her, I really did, but what could I do other than offer the intruder two sitting ducks instead of one by re-entering the house? And even though mom wasn't exactly my mom right now, I always listened to her, always trusted her. She was the only person in the world I trusted in. I was in denial that the trust should be broken right now with the strange, unsettling way she was behaving. So I stayed. I rolled down my window despite the cold so I could hear what was happening, but then felt too exposed, too visible. So I awkwardly made my way from the front of the car to the spacious trunk of the forerunner as mom inexplicably made her way through the snowy walk to the front door. She opened the door. It was unlocked and turned to look back at me with her glazed eyes before entering. Just as the door shut behind her, a figure shot out of the basement door stairwell from the side of the house. He paused on the driveway. My heart leapt. As if it were summer, he wore a white tank top and cut-off jean shorts. Nothing else. No shoes, even. His red hair was heavily gelled and spiked. He was grinning bizarrely, and he was staring right at me. He sped towards the forerunner, moving in a hunched, animalistic way, and was right up against my window in what felt like less than a second. All the while, he was grinning and making eye contact with me. Up close, I realized he had far too many teeth. and They were all too white, slightly spiky. His smile didn't reach his eyes. Those were cold, dark, and staring hungrily right at me. I was frozen in place. He dashed to the front of the passenger door and scrambled through the window I had so stupidly left wide open. His movements were cat-like and more agile than humanly possible as he scrambled across the rows of seats right to me, making beast-like sounds as he came. I tried so desperately to move, to scream, but it was useless. Just as he was inches away from me, I found my voice and let out the loudest scream I could. Eileen! Eileen! He had grabbed me. He was shaking me. I couldn't see anything anymore. Eileen! With a jolt, I could see again, and it was Mom shaking me, her voice calling my name. I blinked. I was on the couch in the TV room. Hun, are you okay? But my adrenaline was still pumping, my my body not yet out of fight-or-flight mode. It took me a few more wide-eyed moments to take in my surroundings, to realize I was safe, realize none of it was real. Another one about your dad? She asked me quietly, guiltily, like she was responsible. I slept in Mom's bed that night, my lingering feelings of horror trumping my embarrassment of acting like a four-year-old. 
I woke up to my alarm going off. Taking a deep breath, I tried to forget the too vivid nightmare as I got up and started getting ready for school. The habitual process of brushing my teeth and picking out an outfit helped calm me down. But the rattling feelings lingered. Why had I just stayed in the car? I asked myself disgustedly. Why hadn't I gone in with her? I shouldn't have let her go in by herself. What was I thinking? Or better yet, why hadn't I immediately leapt out of the car once it was in park and ran to a neighbor's house to get help? Mom was frying eggs when I walked into the kitchen. Hi, love. You feeling better? A bit. She set down the spatula and gave me a hug. She hugged my shoulders. You don't need to worry. He can't find us now. I nodded, wanting to believe her. She seemed satisfied with that. Would you mind taking that full trash bag out to the bin? Sure. I lugged the bag out the side of the house where we kept the bins. Just as I shut the lid, something in my peripheral vision caught my eye. A line of footsteps in the sheet of snow led from the sidewalk and up our driveway. They were large prints from someone walking barefoot, and they led down the stairwell to the basement door. You decide to go for a walk. It's late at night, but you don't mind that. You just need to clear your head in the cool, crisp night air. You know it can be risky to be out by yourself in this part of town, and nonetheless, it's a risk you're willing to take. But in this tale, shared with us by author Michael Vito Constanzo, you soon realize that you should have been a little more careful with where you walk and who's walking with you. Performing this tale is Jeff Clement. So pull on your boots and button up your coat. Why not put your earphones in and listen to a podcast while you walk? Just remember to occasionally look behind you. Why do you sweat and yet shiver, covered in your fine leather? Gloves and coat and scarf and hat do nothing to warm your chill. You think you hear someone stomping through the snow. You think you see a shadow flying across the road. The shops are all closed, their owners safely in bed. Their patrons have long since left for the comforts of their own homes. Why do you still walk in the darkening night? The moon has set and the stars blinked out. Why walk down this particular road on this night? Why walk through the silent suburb with its slumbering houses and empty yards? You look ahead of you. You look to your right and to your left. You look behind you and finally ask the question you've steadfastly refused to answer. 
If you have been walking alone on this night through the untouched powder on the empty street, then why is there a second set of footprints behind you? Look there. See how they stop mere yards from where you stand now. You think it must be a trick of the light, shadows cast by the street lamps. The hour is late and you're tired, thoughts of a warm bed now filling your mind. Thick sheets, fluffed pillows, maybe even a quilt or two. Satisfied, you turn your back on the footprints and hear your boots crunch on ice as you step forward. You can feel the snow give way underneath you with each step, a regular beat emerging with your pace. But there, right there, you hear it. Another step in the snow. But one of your boots is already on the ground, and the other has still yet to touch down. You freeze. One foot hangs in the air, and a chill colder than the frozen wind crawls down your back. You hold your breath, thoughts racing, but you find it difficult to pay attention to them. You resist the urge to turn around, fighting the curiosity bubbling up. There was a sound, an extra step in between your own. But of course you just imagined it, right? A squirrel running along branches, birds rustling in the brush. All perfectly reasonable reasons for such a sound on such a night. But somewhere deep down in your subconscious, you know this is wrong. Your instincts scream at you. There's something behind you. There's something behind you. Good God, man, turn around. So why do you hesitate? Your instincts have been wrong before. You feel the weight of your suspended foot clearly now as the muscles holding it up tire and you watch yourself lower it down into the snow so softly that at first it does not even feel like a conscious decision. Your legs pivot first, feet pointed off to the side, but your upper body barely moves and your head not at all. All is silent. No other noise than your now noticeable heavy breathing, lungs screaming at you for more oxygen in the thin air. You bite your tongue hard until warm blood spills into your mouth and the pain quickly overrides the fear. You turn around. There is nothing there. You see the footprints from before, just next to your own, but nobody stands over them. Blank depressions in the snow. Again, the idea of shadows and a nervous heart come to mind. And the more you think about it, the more it makes sense. You take a deep breath, shoulders relaxing, 
just now realizing how much pent-up stress and energy you had. <laughs> A small chuckle escapes your lips, the absurdity of this situation sinking in. Big bad you, scared of the dark. You feel your head tilt towards the sky, mouth slowly exhaling the crisp air, and you close your eyes. The loss of sight allows you to focus on your ears. You can hear the sound of your breathing, the rustle and wrinkle of your winter clothes, the faint whispering of the cold wind. Or is it just the wind? Eyelids spring open and pupils focus, staring back at the footprints now in front of you. Slowly, your eyes track the invisible body, marking where features would be, and stop when you reach the area the chest should be, if there were a body to occupy the footprints. Time seems to slow for you. It is so easy to see the snowflakes hovering in the empty air, see them swirl in endless patterns. Breath streams from your mouth and nose, and you can feel icicles building up on your eyelashes, but you do not blink. You think to yourself, there is nothing there. You must be imagining the whole ordeal. If you wait a few seconds, you are sure you will come to your senses and realize it is just a trick of the light. And yet, the footprints remain. You take a step towards them, and they remain. You hear the crunch of your boot interrupt the quietness, and they remain. You see the wind blowing fresh powder onto your own footprints, covering them up at a pace only nature seems capable of. Yet these ones, this spare set, remain. Untouched by the elements, deeper and heavier impressions than you originally realized. You take more steps, each shorter and quicker than the last, until you find yourself only mere feet away. A fist clenches, the muscles in your arm tense as you have an idea. For a moment, you cannot believe you are even considering this new idea. But you have read The Invisible Man too many times. You raise your arm and spread your fingers, exposing the gloved palm. With patience a lion would be jealous of, you push your hand forward. You see your fingers stretching outward and think how silly this must all be. If someone were to walk by right now, all they would see is a very tired person groping empty space. You pause your hand and double check the footprints, ensuring that, yes, they are a separate pair and not merely your own. You are not certain how many times you can delay the action, how many times you can ask yourself if they are real and not somehow a figment of your imagination. How many times have you answered these questions now? Do you really believe those answers will change if you phrase the question slightly differently? 
Your hand moves forward, ever forward, until it enters the space and feels nothing. Empty. Blank. (gasps) And suddenly, the white ground is rushing at your face. You feel your knees buckle and your torso tip forward. Your other hand raises out to meet the outstretched one and break the fall. Feet flail into the air and kick wildly behind you, connecting with nothing but the wind. The last thing you feel is a dull ache in the center of your back, followed quickly by frozen air biting at your face as you fall. You throw your leg forward, trying to catch yourself before the impact. Your movements feel sluggish, but the fall even more so. You find the time to examine the lines on your leather gloves and wonder why you bought a pair one size too small. You remember how you had to buy this pair after a stranger accidentally pushed you onto rough pavement, tearing through the cheap material. These thoughts and more calmly float by as you fall, and then the cold is multiplied. Wet snow attacks your face. Your gloved hands sink through the powder, softening the fall somewhat, but not stopping it. You can feel some of the snow turn to water, your own body heat melting it. Quickly, you push yourself up and try to wipe the water from your face, remembering what you know about hypothermia. But your gloves are also wet now, and only spread the cold. You peel one off and use your dry, now freezing hand to rub your cheeks. You try to rise, pulling your legs under you and pushing. The snow and ice threaten to trip you, but your boots compensate and you stand. But now you have time for more questions. How did you fall? You were standing still, so it is unlikely you tripped. Did you black out? Probably not. This is no theme park roller coaster with wild twists and plummets. There is only one logical answer, and yet your reasonable mind tries as it might to refute it. Something pushed you. You were right. The phantom set of footprints belongs to something. And now that something is standing behind you. In your rising panic, you think you hear heavy breathing around you and the crunching of snow beneath large legs. Or is it really your imagination? You lower your center of gravity, arms loose but fists clenched, and pivot in place ready to face whatever monster followed you tonight. You see nothing. Nothing except for another pair of footprints. But this time, there is no trail. The footprints simply exist in the snow, on their own. None lead up to it. None lead away. You step forward and thrust your arm through the empty air. Still nothing. 
You sigh and relax, doubt now filling your mind. Maybe you did just slip. And then you feel it. Another shove, directly in the small of your back, same spot as before. But your body was prepared this time, even if your mind was not. This time you do not fall. The blow strikes, your legs move with it, and you spin with the force, facing the direction of your attacker. Fists rise involuntarily, ready for defense. But you see nothing. Finally, the realization sinks in. It has been present since the first shove, but only now are you ready to accept it. You look down and see exactly what you expected. Another set of solitary footprints. Learning from experience, you turn away. The monster is not there anymore. Instead, you walk. Your muscles are only too happy to move you far from that spot and speed up without your permission. And now you realize how hard your heart is pumping. You can feel your pulse thumping in your chest and your lungs swell to compensate. Breath comes short and quick and you must force yourself to calm down to prevent hyperventilation. You try to ignore what happened, thinking of warm beds and hot soup. But you hear the crunching of snow behind you, in between your own steps, and you panic. You don't know when you decided to run, but you run now. You force yourself to look forward, never turning back, even though you know nothing visible follows you. The constant rustle of your clothes, the pounding of your heart, and the crushing of snow beneath heavy footfalls drowns out any other noise in the night. Around you, the houses remain dark, their cars safe and warm in garages, none the wiser to the chase outside. You hear violently rushing water just before you round a corner and see the bridge which crosses the river. Half-remembered folklore flies forward in your panic. Something about the supernatural not being able to cross running water. Your run turns into a sprint. Your foot catches on something hidden in the snow, and once again you feel yourself falling. But you're moving so fast that your fall turns into a stumble as your other foot comes down. That small delay was enough. You lift your head and feel a sharp sting on your cheek, cutting through the numbness of the cold air. Suddenly your skin feels warm as hot blood trickles down your face, dripping into the snow, dyeing it red. Your mind goes blank, all thoughts simply erased until the only consideration left is fight or flight. You choose both. You hear something from your right, as if the invisible monster is laughing silently at the pain it has caused you, and you flail. An arm flings its fist wildly out of desperation and exhaustion, and you feel it connect with something solid. All you hear is a huff, the sound of air being pushed from lungs. 
and suddenly the snow flies from the ground to your side as you follow through with your swing. You glimpse the vague impression of a body lying there before your legs propel you forward and you run again. You cross the bridge and hear the groaning of ice below, like something in its last death throes. You shake your head, trying to expunge the image from your mind and run across the rest of the bridge. On the other side, you see a car parked on the street, completely frozen over and half buried in a snowdrift. You do not have time to feel sorry for the owner before diving behind it. It is only now that you are not moving that you notice the pain in your hand. If you had not been wearing gloves, you know your knuckles would have been torn and your fingers broken. Whatever you hit was solid and powerful. But you had hit it. A metallic smell sneaks into your nose, and you notice it is coming from your hurting hand. Raising the still-clenched fist, you see the moonlight shine off something glossy and bring it closer to your nose. Blood. It's a smell you never forget. And it's not yours. Your heart all but stops when you realize you have hurt the creature, whatever it may be. And while it seemed perfectly willing to harm you before, now it must be angry. Your flight response kicks in, and it's all you can do to stay still. You need to hide, and this car will not protect you. But how do you hide from something you cannot see? The simplest answer, the one you are most afraid of, is that you cannot. But you do not need to hide anymore. The monster is no monster. Not some specter in the night to terrify you. It is flesh and blood. You have heard it and made it bleed. And if it bleeds, it is real. And if it is real, then you can stand up to it. You can kill it. It's time to make the monster feel fear. But first, you must overcome your own. Or at least learn to shape it, mold your fear into a weapon to strike back against the stalker in the night. You try to calm yourself, crouching in the snow and closing your eyes. The night seems almost peaceful now. There are no other sounds around aside from your breathing. All thoughts go to slowing your breathing, inhaling deeply, and holding in the oxygen before releasing it. You feel your muscles acutely now, aching each and every one. But the pain is dulled by the cold, and you have just enough time to feel grateful for that before the calm is shattered. Metal screams and ice shatters, louder and more violent than anything you have ever heard before. And suddenly the car, your meager shield against the terror stalking you, 
is simply gone. Your eyes flutter open and you raise yourself, ready to run again. But you pause. You cannot help it. Your mind is having trouble processing what you are seeing. You have seen car accidents on the news before. But this looks different. Clumps of snow lazily drift back onto the ground. Jagged pieces of metal and glass litter the bridge. And the car lies in a smashed heap against the railing. You feel the hair on the back of your neck stand on end beneath your coat, and your gaze drifts down to the snow. In front of where the car used to sit only seconds ago, there is a pair of footprints. You slowly straighten up, trying your very best not to appear threatening, eyes never leaving the footprints. You have heard of mothers gaining unnatural strength and lifting cars to save a child. But you have never heard of someone throwing a full-size vehicle across a bridge. You come to the conclusion that you must not make this monster any angrier than it already seems to be. But beneath that thought, another creeps in. This is not like you, it says to back down simply because the opponent is stronger? When has that ever stopped you from fighting back before? You can feel your teeth grind together as you realize that voice in the back of your head is right. But how do you fight back against this creature? You do not have time to answer. The monster decides for you. There is a pressure on your shirt and coat as you feel yourself lift from the ground. Your feet dangle inches above the packed snow. Your hands rise, trying to find the source of the pressure. But before they can, something rams into your face. Harder and stronger than any punch you have endured, you feel your head whip to one side and your jaw nearly goes numb. You can already feel your cheek puffing up and know the bruise will be massive. Again, you can hear a faint whispering in the air, and this time you know it is not just the wind. The monster laughs at you. Your hand finally reaches the pressure on your coat, and while you cannot feel texture through your leather gloves, you know you have found an arm. It is larger than any human arm you have ever seen, and you can feel taut muscles just underneath what must be the skin. You feel the monster's muscles tense, and you know it is preparing to hit you again. Your legs still hang, but are not useless. The monster seems to have forgotten that. You pull one back, almost bringing the both of you off balance but the monster recovers. All the better for you to apply more force. You kick and connect. <laughs> the pressure on your coat disappears and the arm is pulled from your grasp. You feel yourself fall again, but the fall is short and you land on your feet. 
One of your cheeks throbs with pain from the hit. The other still stings from the open cut, though it has stopped bleeding now. As you touch down in the snow, you hear another huff, louder and rougher than before, and you briefly wonder where your kick landed. But you cannot afford to hesitate. Not now. You are back on solid ground for a mere moment before pressing the attack. You charge forward and you drop your shoulder, and it feels as if your glands pump more adrenaline through your veins than ever before. You see the footprints on the ground, and it only takes a few steps to cross the distance. You brace yourself for the impact, for the inevitable huff when you strike. But there is nothing. You trample over the footprints and skid to a halt. You raise your fists and slowly spin in place, trying to figure out where the next attack will come from. It is no use running now. Not anymore. You pause. And in that pause comes the hit into your ribs. But this time you were ready. You may not have seen it, but you felt the air move as the invisible fist displaced it. Not enough time to avoid being hit, but enough to prepare. Instead of staggering, instead of falling, you use the force of the blow to spin around and face your attacker and lash out. Again, you cannot see your enemy, but again, you feel the punch connect. Again, you hear the huff. And then, silence. You wonder if your opponent has become wary of you. You are no longer mere prey to be stalked in the night. You have teeth and claws, and have learned to use them. You resume your slow spinning, mentally and physically preparing yourself for another attack. But none comes. Not yet. In the returned quiet, you wonder why the streets are still empty. Surely someone must have heard the car being thrown across the bridge. The screaming of twisting and breaking metal. But the lights remain dark. No one stirs. No one is coming to help you. You stop spinning and start circling, marking out territory in the snow. This is mine, you're saying to the monster. This here is my territory, and I am waiting. You stop circling when your foot catches on something hidden in the snow. You stumble over it and briefly see the gleam of sharp steel half hidden under the powder. There is time enough for you to designate it as once being part of the wrecked car, but not enough to pick it up. You think it would make a good weapon against the monster, but the monster knows your thoughts now. It understands you, and so it prevents you. Invisible hands wrap around your throat and squeeze. It lifts you off the ground once more, but it does not settle on holding you there. You feel the rush of frozen air and see the world spin around you. Your back slams into the ground, the hands still on your throat. 
The blow pushes oxygen out of your lungs, and you begin to see black spots in the corner of your eyes. But the monster has not accounted for your clothes. It must squeeze through your scarf and your heavy coat, so you can still draw in some precious air, and it does not seem to be enough. Oh, but it is. While the monster chokes you, you reach both hands up, feeling for the body. There. There is the chest. The shoulders. Too high. That must be the jaw. A little lower now. Your fingers feel an Adam's apple, and they push. All thoughts of trying to free yourself from the monster's grasp disappear, and you can only think about killing it. You pour all of your strength and your will into tightening your grip on the monster's neck. More black spots appear in your vision, so you close your eyes. And still you squeeze. Eventually, you hear something. Something you simply cannot describe. Something different from the huffs before. And you feel the monster's grip on your neck loosening. You release one hand from its neck and steadily pry invisible fingers from your own. And then you feel something break beneath your other hand. And the sound turns into something harsher. A sharp whistling sound that should never come from human throats. You feel the monster slump on top of you and you are struck by how massive it seems. It feels heavier than anything you have felt before, and you almost believe it will push you straight through the bridge. Instead, you shove it off you. It takes considerable effort. Your head swims, and you think you see stars for a moment, but you do it. Roll onto your stomach and try to stand, but you cannot. It is amazing how tired you feel, weary beyond all words. But you know your work is not over yet. You manage to crawl to your hands and knees and look at where the monster fell. All you see is a deep depression in the snow. You cannot see the body itself but the snow around it moves, and you know the monster is trying to stand as well. You freeze, terror completely clouding your mind. But it is baseless. The monster cannot stand, cannot move, cannot breathe. In your panic and your fear, you have crushed its throat. But you know that is not enough. It still lives. And if it lives, it can hurt you. You see the wrecked car from the corner of your eye and remember the sharp, jagged steel under the snow. You hold your breath and close your eyes and growl into the night. And you stand. You turn your back on the monster and slowly limp away. Your fight did not take you far from the metal. But it nevertheless feels like ages go by before you can hold the comforting weight. 
You walk back to the depression in the snow, spear in hand. You try to remember the events of the night, how the monster scared you and stalked you, how it shoved you and cut you, how it tried to kill you, but you cannot. Your mind is blank as you raise the spear. You can hardly keep your eyes open. You are so tired. But you do. With all your weight behind it, the spear plummets to the earth. You feel another brief moment of panic while it falls. What if the monster moved again? What if you are stabbing at nothing? But it has not moved. You feel the metal meet resistance as it pierces flesh, and you push harder, driving it through the monster's back, pinning it to the ground. You release your grip and look at your work. All you see is a piece of metal sticking out of the ice and a pool of deep red at the bottom of a depression in the snow. Aside from your breathing, All you hear is the sound of water rushing beneath you. You turn and walk away. Thoughts once again return to your warm bed, your thick sheets, your heavy quilts. Your aching body yearns for the comforts of home. Tomorrow, you may look on this night as a bad dream, or maybe believe yourself to be invincible for having overcome the monster. But in your victory, you are blind. There, behind you, at the other end of the bridge, there is a set of footprints in the snow. And another, and another, and another. final tale. We join a man as he moves back into his childhood home, in a situation already fraught with familial tension due to an inheritance dispute. His grandparents' will wasn't the clearest, and even at the best of times, when there's a will, there's a way to cause friction. But in this tale, shared with us by authors One Faraday and Ronan Ellis, We discover that sibling rivalries are the least of the problems in our main character's future or past. Performing this tale are Graham Rowett, Jessica McAvoy, and Jesse Cornett. So remember, where there is trauma, there can be healing. Where there are things holding you back, there are ways to move forward. And try not to be too tough on yourself, even if you're able to claim, I'm the reason this house is haunted.
Even before the haunting, my grandparents' house was a complicated situation. Our grandparents hadn't been very clear about it in their will. My siblings and I fought over it. My oldest brother wanted it for himself, and my youngest brother wanted to sell it and split the proceeds. Our sister wanted to keep it and use it as a rental property, which seemed silly to me considering it was in the middle of the country, two hours' drive from the city. It turned into the kind of bickering that can split a family up, and it mostly did. Things were pretty strained by the time we followed the youngest sibling's plan, selling it and splitting the proceeds. But what really turned the bickering angry and cold was when I swooped in and promptly purchased the acreage myself from right under their noses. It was a jerk move, I know it, but I had to do it. The house and I had a history that I needed to reckon with. Nobody knew that I was the buyer of the house until the last minute, and by then the process was already too far along for any of them to make a reasonable attempt to stop me. There were a few angry texts and emails, and a trio of irate sisters-in-law showing up unannounced to scream at me until I had to call for the police to intervene. Needless to say, a few bridges were burned. That was all back in October, and my move-in date was November 1st. Not a great day to move on the prairies. Fortunately, the big snowstorm didn't hit until November 3rd, by which time I had things sorted out. I watched the snow come down from the big, beautiful bay windows in the living room, surrounded by moving boxes. It took me a while to get used to country living. At first, the silence got to me. But after a while, I realized there was a different sort of background noise. Birds singing and cawing. Wind whipping through the Caragana hedges. Coyotes braying in the night. It took some getting used to after living in the city with revving engines and emergency vehicle sirens. It was a strange place to be, full of small sounds and slowly shifting light. Finally, the snow melted and the ground thawed, and I was able to get to work. All winter, I'd stared out at the backyard, surrounded by ten feet of Karagana. I'd been watching the cluster of lilac shrubs, biding my time, making my plans. Like an executioner holding the lever of the switch in his hand, waiting for midnight. On March 15th, it was still cold, and banks of snow were still lingering, and I knew that the warmer weather wouldn't hold, but I'd waited long enough. I went out with my brand new chainsaw and began hacking away at the branch stems from the ground, bringing the lilacs down piece by piece in satisfying chunks. I knew that what I was doing wouldn't undo the past, but at least I could finally have some sense of control. Finally, the entire mess of branches lay on the dry grass, oozing sap. The next day, the rentals showed up, a front-end loader with a wide-toothed bucket that dug into the ground and ripped up all of those roots. Where the patch of lilacs used to be was now a roughly six-foot-by-six-foot six hole, about a foot deep, into which I piled all of the branches, doused them with gasoline, and set fire to it all with a match. As I watched it all burn up, I felt a mixture of satisfaction, relief, and resolution. I'd always known I couldn't undo what happened to me, nor bring anyone to justice for it. 
I watched it all go up in smoke, in a long bonfire that lasted into the night. The live, sap-filled lilacs burned slowly and stank like scorched perfume. But when they finally burned away, they left nothing but ash. When I was satisfied, I hopped back in the loader and smothered the remains of the fire in a yard of soil. I didn't have much of a plan for that patch of earth. Surely something nice would grow there. The soil was rich and loamy, and some kind of flowers or vegetables would love that acidic ash. I would figure something out. In the meantime, I would stare out the window with my morning coffee to the spot where the lilacs had been, then smile to myself. I didn't notice anything strange at first. The ground was a mess of ash and soil, so the anomaly wasn't obvious. Then on March 21st, it snowed overnight. I woke to about half a foot of snow, which was irritating. I'd been planning on going into town, but I could wait a day for things to melt. Then, as I sat down for my coffee, I looked out the window and saw the shadow. At first, I thought somebody was in my backyard, but I quickly realized that was impossible. There was nobody standing there. I stared curiously as I finished my coffee, then went straight to the porch to put on my coat and boots. I trudged out to the center of the yard, to where an irregular depression in the snow marked where the lilacs had been. I stood there, looking down at my shadow in the snow. I moved one arm, and my shadow followed. It looked perfectly normal. The problem was the other shadow. Laid out on the ground next to mine, whose feet disappeared into untouched snow. It was in the shape of a person, but no person was standing there. I stood there alone in the yard, staring at it in disbelief. It was unmoving, but shaped like a person. I waved my arm through the air where the person casting it should be. But there was nothing. The shadow didn't react. Finally, I convinced myself that it was some kind of trick of the light. I wondered if it was caused by glare from the snow somehow, or something overhead. Neither of these explanations made much sense, but deep inside I was too rattled to let myself explore any other possibilities. I slowly made my way back to the house. Periodically through the day, I looked out the window and saw the shadow still there, still rooted to the exact same spot. As the sun moved across the sky, the angle of the shadow shifted. It shortened as noon approached and lengthened as the sun moved towards the horizon, finally disappearing as the sun set. I didn't sleep well that night. I dreamed that I did something horrible in the yard. I dreamed about blood on my hands and on the snow. I dreamed about that shadow looming next to me, cast by an invisible shape which stood there and judged me while I reveled in the unnatural act. 
In the morning, I shook and choked back sobs while I made my coffee and tried to console myself with the lie that everyone has dreams like that now and then. I looked out the window and saw the morning sun casting that long shadow across the snow again. Every night, I continued to have those awful dreams. What I did in the yard changed every night, but every morning I would wake up feeling guilt and despair for what I'd dreamed. On the fourth night, I woke up screaming in a cold sweat around 3 a.m. As I fumbled my way to the bathroom to piss, I tried to console myself over and over, but the rational part of my brain was losing out. I hadn't had a decent night's sleep since I saw the shadow. I shuffled to the kitchen and pulled a bottle of whiskey out of the cupboard. As I was raising it to my lips, my eyes caught something out the bay windows. I was looking out the front window, down the road, towards the pond. There was something glowing out there, something yellow and shimmering. I took a quick gulp of the whiskey and set it down on the dining room table, keeping my eyes locked on the light. After watching it shimmer out there for a minute, I came to a resolution. Whatever this thing was, whatever was going on, I needed to face it. I dressed, put on my coat and boots, found the flashlight, and grabbed my grandfather's rifle out of the locked cabinet. Outside, the wind was blowing hard, and I pulled the collar of my coat up to cover my cheeks. The howling wind made me acutely aware that I was alone for miles around. I patted my pocket, making sure I had my keys on me, and started walking down the road. The yellow thing was still there, still glowing and shimmering in the pitch black night. It seemed unnatural, otherworldly. I remembered watching The X-Files as a kid and thought about how stereotypical this situation was. I swallowed hard and tried to chuckle to myself. The whiskey still burned in my throat. Although I could feel the adrenaline urging me to run, I walked towards the thing at an even, measured pace. I realized as I got closer that it must be hovering just above the intersection with the range road. The primal part of my mind was just starting to take hold again. When I was about 20 feet away from the thing, and I was about to turn around and run home, when suddenly I realized what I was looking at. I stepped closer and saw it clearly. It was the yield sign for the intersection. It must have been reflecting the porch light from the house. On a night this dark, with my eyes acclimatized country nights, it had taken on a brilliant glow. I laughed out loud with relief. Just to fully quiet the fear, I stepped up to it and slapped it with my cold, numbed hand. I walked back up to the house. Everything felt normal and peaceful again, at least for a moment. But as I approached, I remembered the shadow. Well, I'd conquered one illusion tonight. Why not another? I steeled my resolve and walked around to the backyard. As I approached the area where the lilacs had been, I realized I was shaking again. 
I noticed I'd also been lowering the flashlight and realized that I was subconsciously keeping it from casting that shadow. As I stood there, I could hear my teeth chattering. I told myself that I had to do this, that I had to see for myself. Slowly, I raised the flashlight up and pointed it towards the invisible form. There it was, the shadow, cast by nothing, stretched out on the ground ahead of me, pointing out towards the Karagana hedge. I froze, disbelieving. Suddenly, it moved, for the first time. I could see clearly by the shape of the shadow that it suddenly looked over its shoulder towards me. I screamed and ran into the house, dropping the shotgun and flashlight in the process. The rest of the night is a blur. I woke up the next afternoon in the living room armchair, cradling an empty whiskey bottle. I spent the rest of the day drinking water and taking Tylenol, wishing the headache would go away. At least it was something else to think about besides the shadow. Every once in a while, I'd glance out the window and see it still standing there, motionless again. It was impossible to tell by its silhouette whether it was now facing away from me or staring right back up at me. The day after that, I drove into town to get groceries. Everyone was on edge. The locals had been taking the quarantine somewhat loosely, but now suddenly they were being very strict about keeping their distance. I overheard that our little town had just gotten its first case of the disease. There was barely any toilet paper left. The grocery clerk was wearing surgical gloves so was the clerk at the liquor store. The next day, it was warm enough for the snow to melt and run off down towards the pond. I saw the shadow on the snow distort and twist and disappear into the disturbed soil where I dug up the lilac roots, but I could see that it was still there, still standing and waiting. I had trouble sleeping again that night. I tossed and turned and found myself thinking I should get a shot of whiskey to calm myself down enough to at least fall asleep. Funny thing was, every time I heard the furnace turn over and start blowing air, I swear I could hear something else with it. Something very quiet, like a voice. I tried listening as hard as I could, and ironically, I think that was what put me to sleep finally. In the morning, I discovered that it had snowed again overnight. Prairie weather is like that. The clouds had dispersed enough to show the shadow laid out again on fresh fallen snow, edges crisp and clear. I reached for the whiskey to add some to my morning coffee. As I poured, I heard a voice behind me, loud and clear. Don't. Don't. I spilled the whiskey as I spun around to find that I was standing alone in the kitchen. Against the admonition, I poured even more into my cup and began sipping it down with shaking hands. Once I'd calmed myself down and finished my coffee, I came to an overdue decision. I picked up my phone and called my sister.
Hello? Hi, Lisa. It's me. Jesus, Dan. I've been trying to get a hold of you for weeks. Don't you ever check your messages? I know, I know. I'm sorry. Things have been... difficult. Tell me about it. Are you still holed up at Graham's place? Are you doing all right? Yeah, I'm still here. And I haven't been all right. What's wrong? Are you sick? No, no, I don't think so. I'm, I'm starting to think... I had to choke back the sob and catch my breath. I'm starting to think this place might not be good for me after all. Well, no shit, Dan. You're up there all alone, way out in the middle of nowhere. You've never been good with isolation anyways, and right now... Well, I mean, now you're doubly isolated. Do you remember the gardener who came here, Lisa? There was a long pause. Gardner? What are you talking about? The guy who used to come up and prune the bushes for Gran and Grandpa. You know, weird guy. Always wore that denim jacket. As I spoke the words, I could remember the smell of that jacket. Like sweat, dirt, sap, and old jeans. Uh, yeah. I mean, are you looking for someone to do yard work? You could probably still find someone to come. They could keep their distance. He's probably not in the business anymore, though. That was 20 years ago. Why? Do you remember his name? <sighs> yeah. Uh, it was on the side of his truck. I remember because it seemed funny. Elwood. I think his first name was Mike or something. Yeah. Mike. I remember that. You're right. What's this all about, Dan? I just... I think he left something here. I thought I'd try to return it. I'm sure he doesn't miss it. It's been a long time. Look, Dan, I'm worried. I know I shouldn't, but I think I need to come check up on you. Nah, I'm all right, Lisa. Just a little rattled. I knew I was backpedaling fast, but the last thing I wanted was for her to come down and see me in this shape. I'd always been a smooth talker, and I was able to talk her down from coming to see me. There was still concern and hesitation in her voice, but when I promised to start checking in with her more often, she finally acquiesced. It took a few hours and a couple more shots of whiskey to build up the nerve to call Mike Elwood. It was easier than I expected to track down. He hadn't moved far, and he still had a landline phone registered to his name in the white pages. I wasn't sure what to expect from the call. I hadn't heard his voice in decades now. I doubted I would even recognize it. 
But when he answered, it was like those dozens of years just fell away. Hello? He sounded older, of course, but he still sounded like that guy glaring down at me among the lilac bushes, with his shears in one hand, his belt buckle in the other. Hello? Someone there? If this isn't another goddamn telemarketer. Mr. Elwood? <clears throat> is this, uh, is this Mr. Elwood, Mike Elwood? A long pause. I could hear him take a heavy breath. That's me. Who's this? I'm, uh... You probably don't remember me. It's, uh, Dan Giesel. You used to... You were my grandparents' gardener. Uh. Another slow, heavy breath. Wondering when you were going to be calling. You sound like you were expecting me. Yeah. Something told me it was going to be soon. I guess you feel like you have a score to settle. I thought about that for a moment. To be honest, I hadn't thought through what I wanted from Elwood. I just knew that there were unresolved issues that I thought I'd be able to resolve alone. I was wrong. It's not about that. Was it, though? I'll be by around sunset tomorrow. After that goddamn shadow disappears from my backyard. He hung up suddenly. I stood there in shock, staring at my cell phone. The next morning, I stood and stared out the kitchen window as I sipped my coffee. It was a sunny day, and the shadow on the snow was very clear. Finally, I worked up the guts to put on my boots and go outside to stand right next to it, still in my housecoat, still clutching my coffee. It lay there, unmoving on the ground. Suppose I know why you're here. The shadow made no reaction. He's coming tomorrow. I'm not really sure what he plans to do. I just need you to know. My voice cracked, and I took a moment to swallow past the lump in my throat and steady myself emotionally. I don't need you here anymore. I know what you're for. I know what you're about. But I moved on a long, long time ago. It wasn't easy. Two therapists, half a bottle of Xanax a week, and a lot of time and distance have changed things for me. I'm not vulnerable and scared like I used to be. So, you can move along now. I took a sip of coffee and stared at the shadow. It made no movement, no indication that it heard me or understood. Suit yourself. I have no idea what happens next. But I doubt it'll be a good thing for any of us.
I turned to go back inside. I was a few steps away when I heard that voice behind me again. Don't! 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 I paused, but made the decision not to look back. I walked back into the house. The wait for Mike Elwood was long and frustrating. I tried to keep myself busy, but the only activity that seemed to help my anxiety was cleaning my grandfather's rifle. As I did so, I sipped on a tumbler of whiskey and tried not to listen to the whispering voices coming from the furnace vent. Sunset came slowly. As the last of the light disappeared from the sky, I started to wonder if he was going to be a no-show. Then I saw the lights on the horizon, and an old blue truck came up the road. I was surprised to see that same logo printed on the door. It wasn't the same truck, of course, but it filled me with the same sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. I remember feeling dread every time I saw that truck in the driveway at my grandparents' house. I turned on the porch light and stepped outside as he pulled into the gravel drive in the backyard. A large moth darted across the bulb, casting flickering shadows everywhere. He opened the door of his work truck and stepped out. I wasn't prepared for the shock of seeing him again. Somehow, I guess, I was expecting him to look the same as the last time I'd seen him, in his thirties. But now he was gray and wrinkled, and instead of a short-trimmed goatee, he had an unruly salt-and-pepper beard. There were more lines around his eyes, but they still had that wild, lecherous look. He looked about three steps away from being a homeless man raving on the street. He stood there fidgeting, keeping his distance. I'm glad you called. I made no move to invite him in. I didn't owe this man any hospitality. I didn't want to, but I figured I had to. Yeah, I, I suppose you're going through the same thing I am lately. I clenched my fists, stared hard into his eyes. You have no goddamn idea what I've been going through, you son of a bitch. Hey, hey now, let's not make a bigger deal of it than it was. My jaw fell open. The hell did you just say? He backed up, suddenly cowed, making towards his truck door like he was itching to get out of there. Look, this has all gotten blown out of proportion, right? You and I both see that. We need to resolve this and get on with our lives. Nope. You don't get off that easy. What you did to me... I stopped, feeling the lump in my throat again and tears welling up. I didn't want to give him the satisfaction of seeing me fall apart, though. Don't pretend you didn't want it, too. After all this time, I'd been hoping he'd somehow feel guilt. I was a child, you asshole! 
He was fumbling for his car door handle now, his face white as a sheet. But then something happened that made us both stop in our tracks. Neither of us had noticed the shadow sitting on his passenger seat until the moment that the passenger door flew open. Untouched by anything corporeal. He'd been telling the truth. There was another one. And it had been haunting him, too. It had hitched a ride. I used the distraction to step towards the front door of the house and reached inside to pull out the rifle. Mike Elwood was inside the truck now, reaching over to try and close the passenger door. Seeing him had awakened something in me, like a wound that I thought had scabbed over but was now ripped open fresh again. I wasn't thinking of the consequences, about taking a life or hiding a body. Nor did I have any thought that putting a bullet through his head would resolve things for me. I wasn't thinking on that level. I didn't care about closure at that moment. I raised the gun towards him, taking aim. But he scurried around inside the cab, making it hard to aim. As I fiddled inexpertly with the gun, he moved quickly. He had both doors closed now and started the engine. I squinted, trying to focus on him and the flickering shadows of the moth and the tears in my eyes. I tried to squeeze the trigger, but my finger felt like it was made of lead. I suppose you never know if you have it in you until you're in that position where you're full of enough rage and purpose. I discovered, as I watched him back out of the driveway and vanish into the night, that I don't have it in me. In retrospect, I'm glad. But at the time, I bawled and screamed and pounded my fists and wished that I did. I didn't sleep much that night. I left the rifle propped up in the corner next to my bed, still itching but unready to use it on someone. I felt so weak and cold that I contemplated a couple of times putting that barrel against my chin and never needing to think about those lilac bushes again. I tossed and turned, even after daylight entered through the window and crept across the room to land on my eyes. I finally got out of bed around noon and shuffled down the hall to the kitchen to make myself coffee. I drank it black and bitter while I stared out the window on the yard. It took me until halfway through my coffee to really register in my brain that the shadow wasn't there. The sun illuminated the patch of ground where the lilacs had been, uninterrupted. No invisible figure cast a shadow on the bright snow. I sipped my coffee slowly and stared, trying to figure out what it could mean. And finally it dawned on me. It was over. I'd faced the man who'd been ruining my life for the past two decades and sent him scurrying off into the night with his tail between his legs. I'd won. I finished drinking my coffee with tears of relief streaming down my cheeks. 
I went outside and saw it up close. The only shadow there was my own. I kicked at the snow and laughed. The rest of the day was wonderful. I painted again in earnest for the first time in weeks, finally finishing a commission whose due date was creeping up. I mended the back gate, a job that I'd been putting off. I taped off the downstairs bathroom to get it ready for renos and repainting. For the first time since I saw the shadow, I felt productive and useful. I even lay off the drink that night, settling into the armchair in the living room with a cup of hot chocolate and a book I'd put down a week ago. I was still recoiling from the emotional release, but I finally knew that I would be able to move on with my life. I was several pages in when a sudden shift of light caught my attention. I looked up and realized that the porch light was on. I sat there in confusion and dread for a minute before I realized that something must have tripped the motion sensor. Probably the same moth from last night. I made a mental note to adjust the sensor tomorrow and returned to my book. A few minutes later, the timer on the light elapsed and it turned off. Shortly after, it came back on again. I barely looked up and kept on reading. Off again. Then on again. I sighed. I got up and started walking towards the door to flip the wall switch so that it didn't do this all night. I was barely three steps away from the door when I heard the knock. Three taps, like a regular daytime visitor. Like someone just popping by to borrow a cup of sugar. I froze. It was after 11. There couldn't be anyone coming by this time of night, to my house in the middle of nowhere. I reassured myself that there had to be a normal explanation, that I should open the door and find out. But still, I was frozen in place. The light went out. Then back on again. Hello? I croaked. Definitely not loud enough to be heard through the door. I tried again, a little louder. The sound of my own voice in this silence felt unnatural and made the situation that much creepier. I realized I was being foolish, that I needed to open the door and look out. If I didn't, I wouldn't be able to sleep. One leg at a time, I took the last steps towards the door and put my hand on the knob. I opened it. There was nothing there. The porch light cast an eerie light over the yard. I let out a sigh of relief and was about to close the door when something moving caught my eye. It came from around the corner of the house and started walking towards me. 
The porch light warped and distended the shadow into a long, exaggerated shape that stretched over the entire length of the yard. It walked swiftly and surely towards the door. I yelled in fright as I slammed the door shut and locked it. Not that locking would do much good against an immaterial shadow or a ghost or whatever it was. I looked out the door window and saw the shadow come to a stop directly under the porch light. Its shadow was now hard to discern, more of a blob than the shape of a person. But I could see it fidget, see its fingers move, see it look back and forth. My hand reached for the switch. Would turning off the light extinguish it? Or just hide it? Was it worth the experiment? As I waited, feeling the cold plastic of the switch plate, I watched the shadow stretch out one arm. It gave a friendly, innocent wave. My breath caught in my throat as I pushed the switch down. And the shadow disappeared into the black of the country night. I watched through the window, but nothing happened. I heard the howl of the wind, looked up and saw the stars. But there was no more knocking, and nothing moved. I turned around and walked through the house aimlessly for a bit, trying to reassure myself that everything was in order. I saw no shadows out of place, heard no knocking or creaking. I dumped the cold remnants of my hot chocolate down the sink and decided to head for bed. I was wide awake, staring at the ceiling for what seemed like hours. I didn't think I would sleep at all that night but I must have been exhausted to the point where my brain gave up, and in the early hours of the morning, I settled into a fitful sleep. I didn't dream about shadows or lilac bushes, or about blood in the snow. I was barely submerged into unconsciousness when I was woken by a loud bang. I sat bolt upright in bed, eyes open and moving, before my mind had even finished waking. I jumped out of bed and was moving down the hallway before it even occurred to me what I was doing. I knew by the sound of the howling wind and the cold air creeping towards me that the door had been blown open before I even got to it. It waved back and forth in the wind. Had I forgotten to lock it? had I not closed it all the way. I slammed it shut and turned the deadbolt. I downed a glass of water and walked back down the hall towards my bedroom. I was reaching to turn off the hall light switch when I noticed it. The hall light behind me was casting my own shadow on the far wall of my bedroom and next to it was a second shadow that wasn't being cast by anyone visible. I followed the shape of the shadow down to where the feet of the figure would be, 
and I realized that it was standing right beside me. Then I realized the change. The shadow was much shorter than mine, like that of a child's. I looked closer at the details, realized that the bad haircut and slouched posture of the figure were very familiar. I felt the fear slowly drain away. Okay. You can stay. the letters back in their envelopes. It's time to take our leave for now. The musical score was composed by Brandon Boone. Our production team is Phil Mykolski, Jeff Clement, and Jesse Cornett. Our creative content manager is Olivia White. Our editor-in-chief is Jessica McAvoy. I'm your host and executive producer, David Cummings. Please visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this show. On behalf of everyone at the No Sleep Podcast, we thank you for listening and being a supportive Season Pass member and for being ever curious. This audio production is copyright 2021 by Creative Reason Media, Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media, Inc.